salutations, dear listeners. Welcome to History Pop, where we examine the intersection of pop culture and history, fictional, fictionalized, or otherwise. I'm your host, Courtney, and I am so very excited to be able to share with you our fourth and final episode of our Victoria series. Well, final until the next season comes out or something else big on Victoria pops up. In this episode, we'll continue to talk a bit about the representations of characters in the show. Uh, You'll remember that we talked quite a bit about Victoria's half-sister, Theodora, and Prince Albert in the last episode. And I want to say, too, that it's really the study of people people, individuals, or uh, as much as we can get individuals, lives and choices and struggles and triumphs are really what brings history to life for me. And so I am so excited to get the chance to actually work on people who I don't normally work on in my historical research. And I hope that it makes this a bit more engaging to you to also talk about the real life choices of these characters and how that has a bearing on how their stories are told in these particular pop culture works like Victoria. And so then looking at how their representations are different than how they've normally been represented in the historical record or by historians and their analyses, I think it leads to really interesting questions about what stories we tell and how we tell them and who benefits from telling them in these particular ways. So today though we're going to talk a bit more about Albert, Um, probably, you can't not talk about Albert. Also Lord Palmerston, the foreign secretary with a very happy and very scandalous marriage, Uh, and Sophie, the Duchess of Monmouth. There are also a few key historical funds that the show has hit on that we'll also examine, namely Victoria's relations with other countries and those within her realms. Uh, Queen Victoria, did you know, was the very first reigning sovereign of England to meet with a French monarch since Henry VIII met with Francis I on the field of the Cloth of Gold in 1520. So that was a long time. But anyway, uh, very cool stuff happening in this episode of uh, History Pop on Victoria. So stay tuned. back after i do love that theme i know i've said it before and i will say it again i love that theme it's just so gorgeous um but anyway oh also thinking back to the field of the cloth of gold i'm really excited because our next series originally it was just going to be a one shot but then i'm like nah you're my house now that sounded weird you're in my house now now I try to be hip and cool like the young kids and, you know, it just, it just doesn't work. It just doesn't work. I just need to be, you know, my weird self. But anyway, uh, so I'm thinking of the field of the cloth of gold in 1520. Um, I was originally just going to do a one shot, uh, for the performance of six that I'm going to be getting to go and see here at the end of the month, which I am super duper 
excited about. But then I also realized that the timing isn't exactly going to work out for me to do a one-shot, because uh, it's uh, on the 29th, and so that's when the podcast episode would be out, and so I'll be seeing it in the evening, not in the morning. So I was thinking that instead of just doing a one-shot, that I'm going to be doing a full-blown series like I did with Rosa Versailles or Victoria on the wives of Henry VIII. And I'm really excited because this is my jam. Uh, I am doing my PhD right now and writing my dissertation. And as much as it's not necessarily completely on Tudor history or the Tudor wives, it is partially on Tudor history and Tudor wives. I'm doing actually a dissertation looking at consorts, you know, the spouses of the sovereign, uh, throughout Tudor and early Stuart England. And so I do get to talk a lot about best queen, sorry, uh, Catalina de Aragon, Catherine of Aragon, who is, of course, Henry VIII's first wife, and she has a major starring role in this musical six. So uh, in the coming weeks, then, after Victoria is up and posted, I hope you're going to look forward to looking at a bit of a little bit of the Wars of the Roses and how that leads then into the Tudor history. So we're going to start off with just a podcast kind of talking about who each of the queens were, a little bit of their background and getting into the background that you need for six or that you don't really need it for six because they do their best to try to introduce you to it. But uh, then also looking at different pop culture series where we have the wives of Henry VIII, as well as other English history figures. So I figured that we'd be looking at white queen, white princess, and then the Spanish princess, uh, among other things as well. So stay tuned. (laughs) But anyway, so back to Victoria and thinking about, uh, you know, what is the legacy of Victoria and how is that represented in this show? Your exit ticket question then for this episode is, and just to kind of keep it in mind throughout the cast, is who's your favorite character from the show Victoria? You know, based on your own knowledge and what you may learn here, do you think that the show has done them justice? Uh, do you Is your favorite character one who actually was based in historical record, like Victoria or Albert or, depending on who you are, maybe Theodora? I don't know. But, or is it someone who was completely made up, like Sophie, the Duchess of Monmouth, who had, you know, historical, I want to say tendrils, not really, but, you know, bits and pieces of her character are inspired, and we'll talk a little bit about that, by actual historical people. And so, even though the character herself doesn't exist in historical record, inspirations for her did. And so, is your character one who was completely made up? Is it one who is not completely made up? And... Yeah, do you feel like the show has done them justice? Now, one character that the show can't do justice to, like I said, is Sophie, the Duchess of Monmouth. I love her. Uh, And they can't because she is entirely made up. We first meet her in season three, and she's one of Victoria's new ladies-in-waiting. Her mistress of the robes, actually, so, you know, the highest member of the the wardrobe. Um, She's sweet. She's personable, she's charming, and she knows that she has a lot to learn about life at court, but she is determined to try. Her husband, the Duke, does he even actually get a name? I want to say he's George, but I'm not sure. Basically, everyone just refers to as the Duke, uh, is an arrogant jerk, misogynistic jerk, 
uh, yeah, he steps in it with the queen later, it's great, who reminds her at every possible, probable misstep, and even when she does well, that she was not born to nobility. He only married her for her family's money. Now, of course, these sorts of marriages did happen, famously. We could see that in real life from uh, the story of Consuelo Vanderbilt, who married the Duke of Marlborough in 1895. Now, Consuelo is one of the Vanderbilts, as in the American Vanderbilts, who made their fortune in the 19th century, and she married a British duke. Um, now, theirs wasn't the only such marriage, but it was one of the more glamorous ones, since the Vanderbilts had clearly bought the marriage, and Consuelo had been forced into it by her mother. Her mother, Alva, uh, was a major socialite, and she was always striving to get the family higher and higher and higher up in social spheres and in the world. Um, and actually later, Consuelo testified that she'd been locked in her room by her mother until she agreed to marry Charles. Now, her American money and connections helped to stabilize the fortunes of the dukedom as he'd inherited it in near bankruptcy in 1892. Consuelo's... Consuelo... Yeah, I said right. Consuelo's dowry was $2.5 million in stock of her father's railway companies, which would be worth about $65 million today. Now... Her new husband, Charles, had already been in love with another woman, but badly needed the Vanderbilt money. Uh, she ended up leaving her husband in 1906 after having two sons with him and then officially divorcing him in 1921 and then annulling their marriage again because he converted to Catholicism in 1926. One of Consuelo's American friends, Gladys Deacon, became entangled with uh, her ex-husband, Charles, and then they married after his divorce. Now, of course, they, too, had a very unhappy marriage. I wonder, because I honestly don't think that Charles was kind of a winner. But uh, eventually it got to the point where Gladys would keep a gun in her bedroom to be able to keep Charles out of it. Doesn't that sound great? Uh, but just after their divorce, though, Consuelo uh, married a Frenchman, Jacques Balsam, and they lived happily together for the rest of their days. Uh, she did a lot of philanthropy, and I think she did a lot with helping children as well. Um, but, yeah, she got a happy ending, at least. So, like Consuelo and Charles, Sophie and her duke do not have a happy marriage. She has a beloved, sweet son named William, whom she dotes on. She loves to bring him toys from her travels when she goes to places with the queen. Uh, now, unlike Consuelo, Sophie is made a lady-in-waiting for the queen, whereas Consuelo was definitely not. Now, Consuelo actually was pretty high up in the uh, social hierarchy. She knew how to throw a good party. But that's not the same as being in court. Now, this should give Sophie an edge when dealing with her, quite frankly, abusive husband, but it doesn't. He's jealous of her connections at court, and honestly, just jealous in general. She craves love and attention, and ends up looking for it first in Lord Palmerston, the foreman's, uh, foreign secretary, and Joseph, the footman. She does end up with Joseph and is nearly ready to run away with him, but is taken literal captive by her husband on account of her nerves to better control her. He has a doctor say that she is incapacitated to the point where she must be kept away from society, and he does so even away from Victoria's power for a little while. You have no right to do this, she yells at him, and he coldly inform hers, inform hers. <laughs> I'm a little out of it today, I'm sorry. 
He coldly informs her that it is indeed his duty and his right. And honestly, in Victorian Britain, this was quite true. In general, once a woman wed, she literally had no rights. This was something that had been happening since at least the medieval period, called coverture, where a woman, once she is wed, she is under the cover of her husband, and so everything that she has, uh, her labor, her possessions, her wealth that she may inherit, become her husband's. Uh, and so, you know, that's one of the reasons why originally uh, a lot of more egalitarian uh, societies that were pushing for the vote for all men, universal suffrage for men, did not want to give the vote to women because they're like, well, come on, the, we're, you know, your husbands are going to vote the way that needs to be voted for anyway to, for, for what's best for the family. And so it's going to be just a waste to have women have to vote. It's just going to be so much of a pickle to have to get into. And why? Because it's not going to change anything anyway. Um, so we have coverture. So we have um, a femme soul, who's actually something slightly different, uh, completely different, actually, um, in which a woman actually was able to be independent. But that's uh, was a rarity in English history, English marital history. But yeah, so covered under the auspices of her husband, her children, her property, any wages she may earn were all his to do with as he pleased. And this was built into the common law. A man could beat his wife, totally fine, so long as he didn't do it, do it to excess, so long as he wasn't cruel with it. You know, if she was getting uppity or whatever it is he saw it, then yeah, he could totally beat her without any ramifications coming back on himself. Um, now, if it did become excessive, well, also then again, nothing really happened to him because... You know, what husband is going to get convicted when all of the people who are on the judge, jury, and whatever are all men who've also probably beaten their wives? Legislators did try to curb excessive wife beating uh, with the 1853 Act, quote, The Act for the Better Prevention and Punishment of Aggravated Assaults Upon Women and Children. But again, that wasn't to stop beatings. It was just to make them less excessive. So, and if a woman tried to divorce her husband, well, good luck. Uh, before and during the early Victorian era, marriages were seen as an entirely religious affair and were governed by the church. So you'd need to have it an old, which, side note, thinking about uh, the divorce of Catherine of Aragon and Henry VIII, um, a lot of people think about it either as a divorce or an annulment, but those words basically are synonymous at that particular point in time because there is, divorce didn't necessarily mean the secular uh well, the severing of the secular ties. It was all religious. All of these things were sacraments and done in the church. And so that's why you needed to have the church to give you permission to get out of it and slash or annul it. Um, and so these were all governed by the church. And so then you need to have your marriage annulled. Now, unless you knew someone powerful or had lots of money, then you could get an act of parliament to grant you a divorce. But after 1857, it did become easier to obtain a civil divorce. So this is a huge change then in English common law. Hi, kitty. Why are you talking? What's wrong? He's wandering into the bedroom and looking at it and how it's all empty and sad. And I'm like, no, it's okay. I I'm right here. Okay, well, we'll see what he does. <laughs> 
sorry, where was I? Oh, yes, before the kitty decided he wanted to interject his point of view. Um, and so we have that, that it's a major shift then in how England, co English common law is dealing with the separation of spouses and moving things from the purview of the church to the purview of the state. And so you could get a civil divorce. Now, I think you probably, if you wanted to have it uh, annulled in the church, you still had to go and do that. But I would need to double check that. Um, but at the same time, though, so you could get a civil divorce. Now, when I say easier, I don't mean easy. It's a possibility, even though it's somewhat remote. To obtain a divorce after the 1857 Matrimonial Causes Act, which was spearheaded by Lord Palmerston when he is Prime Minister, spoiler, sweetie, all men had to do to prove, uh, to, to be able to obtain the divorce was to prove their wayward wife's adultery. If you could say, yeah, my, my wife is sweeping around with uh, the neighbor milkman, I don't know, and you prove it, boom, dudes can get divorces. Uh, women, though, had an extra hurdle they had to jump through. Women had to prove adultery of their husband, but also either incest, bigamy, cruelty, or desertion. This act made it easier to gain an audience with a barrister or lawyer to be able to obtain a divorce rather than have to go to the church or parliament route. Uh, it also abolished adultery as a criminal offense. So as much as things improved for women, it still really wasn't all that great. You could also be randomly cavity searched by the police if you looked quote-unquote unclean. And actually, if you are interested in looking at how these uh, laws... Hi, kitty baby. What's wrong? Yeah, he's, he's just, for some reason, lonely, even though I'm here. <laughs> um, but if you are interested in actually finding out more about how these laws were applied in the day-to-day -day life of women, I would heavily suggest reading the five by Hallie Rubinold. It is a newer book. I think it was just released this summer and uh, in it she looks at Yes Kitty. So if you are interested in checking out uh, Hallie Rubinold's The Five, she does a really great job of bringing in the cultural legal law enforcement uh, socio uh, milieu that surrounds uh, the victims of Jack the Ripper. Uh, she does a really good job and I agree with her that there's so much uh, focus on Jack the Ripper himself and the mystery of who did these brutal killings and blah, blah, blah. Uh, instead of focusing on his victims, the, the people whose lives he stole. And because of that, then the people whose lives were altered forever. And so she focuses not on Jack the Ripper, but she focuses on each of his five victims and writes a, a mini biography within the collection of each of them and so it is a fascinating and depressing book but it but it's absolutely necessary because we sensationalize so much of the and fetishize these killers and we devote Netflix documentaries to them, and we spend so much time trying to dig into their heads instead of really thinking about who's important here. It's important to know, you know, how to stop these people from doing all of these horrible things, but it's also more important, I think, to be able to look at the victims and realize that 
these aren't just corpses on display. These were real people who had lives and dreams and aspirations and struggles. And we forget that a lot when we focus just on their killers. So yes, read The Five. It's fantastic and incredibly well-researched. And she's actually come under a lot of flack uh, for the conclusions that she draws and even just the general premise of the book. She goes against, uh, spoiler alert, what a lot of ripperologists have to say about um, why the ripper chose these particular people to kill and how he did it. So yeah, no, if you get a chance, check it out from your library, buy it on Amazon. I am not getting any sort of money for this. I'm not getting any sort of money for this podcast, actually. <laughs> but that's okay. But no, do it. If you're interested at all in any of these things, go for it. You will not be disappointed. Um, but anyway, so Sophie, the Duchess of Monmouth, in 1851, doesn't really have much that she can do. Unless she wants to and has access to her family's wealth, she may not necessarily, uh, to bring an act of parliament, you know, to be able to sue, basically, for divorce in parliament. So she could do that, but that's not really all that likely. Um, but so the Duke has her captured, uh, lets out that she is ill. I don't know, y you can't see them, but hopefully you can hear them in my voice, the, the air quotes, the heavy, heavy air quotes that I'm doing right now, that she is ill um and victoria believes it to start off with until one of her servants suggests that all is not well in the monmouth household the queen then sends abigail her hairdresser to sneak in sneaky sneaky on sophie who reports back that she thinks that the duchess is being confined on the grounds of insanity and of course sophie's not insane nor were many of the other women imprisoned in asylums for exactly the same reason when women became inconvenient to their husbands, it wasn't unheard of for them to be put in asylums. Now, of course, the doctors that the Duke pays say that she's hysterical, which was understood to be, I mean, as much as it was something that could happen to anybody, it was mostly a women's disease, as the word hysteria comes from the Greek word for womb. Uh, hysteria was thought to be a byproduct of womanhood, that women were too weak and too frail and just about anything could set them off on hysterics. Oh. Yeah, that's why we have fainting couches and stuff like that. Literally on casters that you could wheel in just in case the woman needed to, you know, have a comfy place to faint onto. Ugh. Um, scientific minds actually also once believed in a concept called the wandering womb, which was literally thought to, depending on what was going on or what they thought was going on with you, that your womb was migrating to random places in your body and it would cause different ailments um apparently though wombs uh, that wandered liked aromatherapy uh and they liked to kind of hang out in your throat so they could get all these different scents and stuff like in uh hysteria was also possibly thought to be related to demonic possession during the medieval period afterwards of course once we have the rational thought things coming into is the enlightenment and all um that they thought it was, of course, you know, just more of an imbalance in your humors. And, of course, you know, marriage and getting it on regularly with your husband, you know, for procreative purposes, not for fun purposes, was a cure for hysteria and the wandering womb. Yeah, I love this. Gee, wow, my wife is out of sorts, but I want to have sex. What do I do, doctor? Well, son, it's in her best interests. 
Sex will make her feel better, too. Just go for it. Besides, you literally basically own her, so just do what you want anyway. <coughs> now, once she finds out, Victoria demands to speak with the Duke at once. And I love this quote. In my experience, men only call women mad when they are doing something inconvenient. Which, well, I love this moment for the queen getting her groove back which is something that she's had to work on this whole season i highly doubt this was something that she actually said to any random duke because once again this is all entirely fictionalized but what it does here in this scene is really all about the queen getting her groove back she's been having a really rough go of it in the third season Theodora has um, arrived and is being a conniving wench who only seeks trouble for Victoria due to her own jealousy that Mama loved the baby better and to advance her own daughter's marriage prospects. I just realized Theodora is actually the middle child. I wonder if they're playing on any of the psychology of, well, the pseudo-psychology of, of middle children anyway. I'm a middle child. What does that say about me? Do I have jealousy towards the baby of the family because Mama obviously loved her better? I don't know. Probably not. Because um, actually my parents did a pretty good job of not making it look like they loved or appreciated any of us more than the others. So good for them. Um, but anyway, Theodora's there. She's a conniving wench who has Mama issues. Uh, and she owes only there also to advance her own daughter's marriage prospects. Now, this meddling uh, is what causes uh, phrenologists to be brought in to examine Bertie. Now, we also have this other running little arc between uh, Bertie and Vicky and Albert, especially in Victoria, because we see these parallels between uh, Vicky and Albert and Bertie and Victoria and how Bertie is more emotional. He is... Uh, less able to concentrate during his lessons and honestly doesn't really care for schooling as much as Vicky. Vicky just soaks up all of this knowledge like a sponge. And um, so then this leads Theodora to suggest that possibly something may be wrong with the boy and we need to have experts come in to to you know have a look at his skull and see if he has any anger bumps or whatever. Uh, phrenology was a thing. Uh, it was a strain of science, and I'm also once again doing heavy air quotes, scientific research that asserts that your capabilities in intellectual, emotional, uh, or otherwise are all informed and constrained by your skull shape and size. Basically, Surprise, surprise, wealthy white dude's skulls are best for intelligence and rational thought. Now, of course, Albert's going to think that that's totally true because, you know, he has lots of rational thought. And, you know, of course, he's a rich white dude. So, of course, his skull is going to be, uh, you know, indicative of his aptitude for rationality and intelligence. But seriously, it was just an entirely racist justification for imperialism and racism. Uh, so the phrenologist is called in to diagnose what's wrong with Bertie, uh, which leads, of course, Albert to think that something is wrong with Victoria, too, as Bertie and Victoria are a lot alike. And I'm sorry, I just get so mad with Albert in this season. And we're, we're supposed to, we're meant to. And they do a good job of just showing him devolve into being just a jerk. But yes, every couple fights. And yeah, he did totally gaslight her in real life. And yeah, he's a complete jerk and she still supports the crap out of him. And no, I don't have to like it. So, more on Albert. Check out the last episode. Um, 
another new character though who appears on the scene because i'm done with albert for right now uh uh is is henry temple lord palmerston he bursts onto the scene as the tall, handsome, and exceedingly charismatic foreign secretary who has his finger on the pulse of the nation. Uh, honestly, the people just love him. At first, he rubs Victoria and Albert the wrong way, who nickname, uh, nickname him the uh, Lord Pilgrimstein, after what his name is in German, and of course, Victoria and Albert both do speak fluent German. Uh, eventually, though, Victoria comes to appreciate Palmerston for his generally deft handling of affairs and how, as much as he comes across as an arrogant man, because he kind of is, he is also very capable in his office, as well as capable of learning and growth. Uh, the historical Lord Palmerston, just like his fictional counterpart, had a long political career before he'd actually made his way to his post as foreign secretary. And what we see in the show was actually his second time in the post. He first entered politics after completing his degree at Edinburgh and was the secretary at war from 1809 to 1828, where he was in charge of the army's finances. He was also an MP as an Anglo-Irish lord, and as his uh, Oxford Dictionary of National Biography entry states, quote, Like many Pittites, or followers of William Pitt, the former prime minister, now labeled Tories, he was a good Whig at heart, end quote. Now, Tories, once again, as we've talked a little bit about before, are the conservative party in Victorian politics, and Whigs tend to be more liberal. And while he sat in the conservative party, and if you want to know more about how the uh, English parliamentary system works, people actually, like, do get up and literally move from one side of the chamber to the other, depending on how they want to vote, if they want to vote with one party or the other that's uh, creating the government. So it is actually really interesting and different from the uh, United States House of Representatives or Senate. But yeah, you should definitely look it up. It's really interesting. Uh, but anyway... So, and while he did sit with the Conservative Party, he did actually work for many liberal causes. He spoke in favor of Catholic emancipation and extended uh, male suffrage. He was insightful, but not really a great order, but he generally knew what needed to be said and how it needed to be said at that particular point in time. Uh, he shifted his party allegiance to the Whigs in 1830. After this, he was appointed the first foreign secretary, uh, his, to his first foreign secretary post, where he did earn the name Lord Pumice Stone um, due to his gunboat diplomacy tactics. Uh, he took a break from public affairs for a few years after his marriage, which I'll talk about in a little bit, to come back as foreign secretary for 1846 to 1851. And it's at this point that we meet him in the show. Now, just as he did in the show, he was an Irish landlord and did evict his tenants during the famine. Uh, and even though he did evict about 2,000 people, he did also help to pay their way to America so that they could have another chance at life. Now, the Potato Blight, or Great Famine, was a dark period, one of many imposed upon the Irish by the British, in Irish history, uh, about 1845 to 1852. And it led to the deaths of about a million people and led to another million leaving Ireland for elsewhere. And before I jump in to explain a bit more, I want to say that those in power were the ones benefiting from the pain and death endured by the Irish people uh, in terms of, like, the, the Irish aristocracy, the English aristocracy. And while some of those in power did seek to aid and alleviate the burdens placed on the Irish, that doesn't mean that they were entirely blameless for what happened. There was a delayed A response, and in some cases it was very much too little too late. While the blight itself was a major factor in the famine, it was also the only major crop in Ireland at the time, the potatoes, so there weren't really any alternatives to feed people once the blight sent in, 
another cause of hardship were the corn laws and absentee landlordship. Basically, there were more than enough crops to give everyone in Ireland something to eat, but those crops were being shipped to England for sale there. The Irish food exports actually increased during the famine, but the Irish themselves couldn't actually afford to buy what they produced. They were able to use these decent potatoes to pay their rent on their land to their landlords, which left the workers little and sometimes none to eat for themselves or for their families. Now, the Corn Laws uh, were laws in Britain that were intended to protect local farmers from cheaper grains imported from other locales, and these actually have been in use since, like, the Tudor period. But they also kept prices high in Britain as well, which made it harder for poorer people to obtain food and eat it. Beginning in the 19th century, though, there were those who sought to, in government to repeal the corn laws, uh, which, and when I say corn, the corn basically just means not just actual corn, but grains as well. Basically, things that are grown that are used to eat. Um, and in 1841, they were led by Prime Minister Robert Peel against the wishes of his own party. Uh, yeah, the concert, yeah, he... He actually was technically a traitor to his party there. Now, a, Victorian, a historian of the Victorian period, Asa Briggs, wrote that at the time, repealing corn laws would, quote, first, it would guarantee the prosperity of the manufacturer by affording him outlets for his products. Second, it would relieve the condition of England questioned by cheapening the price of food and ensuring more regular employment. Third, it would make English agriculture more efficient by stimulating demand for its products in urban and industrial areas. Fourth, it would introduce, through mutually advantageous international trade, a new era of international fellowship and peace. The only bar barrier to these four benefit, uh, beneficent solutions was the ignorant self-interest of the landlords, the bread-taxing, oligarchy, unprincipled, unfeeling, rapacious, and plundering landlords, end quote. If there were no tariffs on grain, then more could be purchased and used to feed the starving people in Ireland and the hungry poor in England. This did ease the issue somewhat, and eventually, though, partly led to the Great Plains in the U.S. becoming a global breadbasket with cheap grains to sell. So during all of this, Lord Palmerston is one of those absentee Irish landlords, and he does evict his tenants because they can't pay their rent. But he does try to help them by financing their way to the America, so while he made those hard choices, he did what he thought was right. And so did Victoria in real life, uh, she ended up donating the most amount of money to Irish Relief than any other individual, with 2,000 pounds of a donation, which was a lot of money, possibly as much as about 5 million in today's money from her own personal stores. Uh, she also supported the Maynooth Grant, which was a caste grant to a Catholic seminary, even though many Protestants opposed it, and under her reign, with the help of Palmerston, the Catholic emancipation began in earnest. Now, during much of English history, uh, since the Reformations in the mid-16th century, Catholics were a persecuted minority who had to live in fear of financial, social, and official punishments. Like, they had to pay fines for not attending Protestant churches. They couldn't hold office for much of the time. And actually, during uh, Elizabeth's reign, the first Elizabeth uh, in the late 16th century, it was a capital offense to be an ordained Catholic priest in England. I think it was in the mid 1580s. I'd have to double check, though. So being a Catholic was difficult in England. Uh, for example, in 1823, Daniel O'Connell was elected as a member of Parliament for County Clare in Ireland, but because he was Catholic, he couldn't take his seat in the English Parliament. He campaigned, along with many others, to be allowed to actually 
take his seat that he was elected to. Uh, the Duke of Wellington, the hero of Waterloo, and Robert Peel, even though they were both anti-Catholics in Parliament, realized that to deny him his rightfully won seat would lead to much larger trouble down the road. So they worked to get the king, at that time George IV, to allow Catholics and others of Christian faiths their spots in Parliament should they be elected. And this finally did happen in 1829. Palmerston was a part of that giving speeches in Parliament in support of O'Connell and the Catholic Emancipation. Much as the show tries to depict him as, and I've seen it before in lots of different reviews, as a rake with a heart of gold, that really actually wasn't off the mark. Uh, Palmerston was a well-known ladies' man who was nicknamed Cupid. He was handsome, intelligent, and funny. He was known to have many lovers, usually the wives of other men, uh, and he actually recorded all of his conquests in pocket diaries. He actually was obsessive about recording his life in pocket diaries, and so, of course, he wrote about all of the women that he slept with. Kind of reminds me the, of the cupboard of Patrick's love and coupling. That's an old reference. Except at least he didn't video them, because video wasn't a thing at the time, but he probably would have. Anyway, um, <laughs> he had been in a relationship with Emily Lamb, who was the Lord Melbourne's sister. Yes, Lord M. Uh, and she's an interesting woman in her own right. Uh, she'd been married to the Earl Lord Cowper, uh, and it's thought that he fathered, at well, he being not Lord Cowper, Palmerston, had fathered at least three of her five children that she'd had while she was married to Cowper. She was a sparkling, witty woman, much like her mother, actually, who was known for her loose morals, much like her mother, uh, which she had supposedly inherited from her mother and her mother's good friend, Georgiana, the Duchess of Devonshire. And I'm actually working through a biography of her right now to read. Fascinating lady. Uh, one thing that I absolutely love is how Henry and Emily's relationship is represented in the show. They are clearly devoted to one another, which is how it was in real life as well. Even though they both had extramarital affairs um, you know, before they wed each other, uh, historians aren't even sure if she continued to do so after she married Henry, uh, but she certainly conducted extramarital affairs during her first marriage, which, you know, with Lord Palmerston and possibly others, uh, but her marriage to Cowper was one of neglect and sadness. She'd started off loving him. Uh, but it got to the point where she was happy when he came home drunk because then at least he'd talk to her. So, I mean, in some ways you can't really blame her. She just wanted someone to love her and spend time with her, which Lord Palmerston did, and they were devoted to each other. Uh, Emily Lamb was also a fantastic hostess who knew how to work political friendships, which is why in the final episode of season three, we see her telling Theodora that she's going to make her husband prime minister. Now, I love this because this is, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty, and the show knows exactly what's going to be happening next. Which is weird because I'm glad that they're setting that up for the next season, even though they didn't really set up Lord Palmerston all before the third season. Um, but yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, he does become Prime Minister in 1855, and he holds the record for being the oldest person to become Prime Minister for the first time. In real life... He was 70. He does not look like he's in his 60s in the show. <laughs> um, but it does seem that, you know, being on the show magically pe makes people look younger and sexier for some reason. I can't fathom why. Um, and I love this quote, actually, from Emily's ODNB. Quote, but if Victoria and Albert represented the love match of the century, Emily and Palmerston ran them a close second. End quote. 
even though they both had affairs, Victoria was on board with their relationship and marriage and gave them her blessing. They were devoted to each other, and after his death in 1865, she continued to call herself Lady Palmerston until her death in 1869. She died in Brockett Hall, the same place as her brother, Lord M., and her husband, Palmerston. She was buried beside her husband in Westminster six days later. He was the fourth person of non-royal standing to be given a state funeral, after Sir Isaac Newton, Lord Nelson, and the Duke of Wellington. So where does this leave our beloved diminutive queen? In 1869, she's still mourning for Albert, and had been reclusive, only making a few public appearances. Most of the ceremonial functions of the monarch were being performed by Bertie as Prince of Wales, so I'm actually really excited to see in season four how we age up the kids. Um, because, you know, as we talked about in the last episode, Bertie is going out to Ireland and doing stints in the army, going to uh, Oxbridge for his studies. Um, enjoying his time with uh, Irish actresses, and he actually does end up getting married. Um, so he's performing a lot of these functions that normally Victoria would do um, with his wife, Princess Alexandra of, and give me a second here because this is a very long German name, uh, Schleswig-Holstein-Sonderburg-Glücksburg. Not bad, Courtney, uh, who was actually also in line for the Danish throne. Now, Bertie wanted to marry for love. He got to see how his parents desperately loved each other and he wanted something like that for himself and that's actually a vein that we see in almost all of victoria's children and grandchildren is that they all want their lives or at least their marriages to live up to this great love that they see in victoria and albert and Bertie did want to marry for love as well not just to satisfy his family's dynastic needs and alexandra and Bertie were a good match they were leaders of high society, and she was beautiful, charming, and elegant. Uh, but it would be a long time, long time, before they would be king and queen themselves, and Victoria was not keen to actually cede duties to them. As much as Bertie was stepping up and helping out, Victoria was not happy about, happy about it. She actually still blamed Bertie for Albert's death. And at this time, she's starting to rely more on her attendant, John Brown, uh, who had been in attendance on both Albert and Victoria when they would visit the Scottish Highlands. Uh, and so I'm assuming then that he's also going to be a major character in the next season, and most likely also season five. Um, now, he's partly the reason that Victoria is able to come out of her deep mourning. As her attendant, especially one from her beloved Scotland, uh, he was able to talk to her in ways that no one else could. And there's a fun quote from him uh, from when she's being excessively melancholy was, Hoots, woman, can you, can you not hold your head up? Yeah, so, can you not hold your head up, woman? <laughs> he had a very tough love approach with her. Uh, he died in 1883, but by then, she had successfully re-entered pub public life and was receiving foreign dignitaries, uh, attending the state opening of Parliament again, and people were just glad to have their queen back. She provided the image of safety and stability, just as Elizabeth II does today. Victoria was also quite pleased to add uh, Empress of India to her royal styling in 1877. Uh, she was a consummate matchmaker, and she had plenty of children and grandchildren with whom to make marriage arrangements. She literally became the grandmother of Europe, with her descendants on thrones all over Europe and Russia. But all of this, of course, is yet to come. So knowing what you know now, for what at least my guesses are for what's coming in seasons four and five, what is Victoria's greatest legacy i don't know is this something that you've 
seen in the show, something from this cast, something from your other studies. And once again, though, who is your favorite character on the show based on your own knowledge and what you may learn here? Do you think that the show has done them justice? So share your feelings and thoughts with me, uh, either by commenting below. You can't see it, but I'm doing like what the YouTube video people do and pointing down, even though it doesn't do anything. <laughs> um, or if you're on my website listening to this or if you've downloaded this off of one of the many uh, uh, different uh, podcasting apps on Apple or Google or wherever, um, send me a tweet, hashtag HP, as in history pop, exit ticket. So until next time, stay tuned, stay well, and I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day. Thank you so much for listening. This has been Courtney for History Pop signing off. It's been a pleasure. Take care. This has been written and performed by Courtney Herbert. Intro and outro music written and performed by Jonathan Colton and used under a Creative Commons license. This has been a Turtle and Rabbit production.